Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 334. Today's big Bible question, why did the greatest preacher in the Old Testament get mad at God? Plus, actually, the church really is a building. Well, happy Thanksgiving Eve, dear friends. This is a weird year to be sure, but there's much to be thankful for, and I hope that your week causes you to enter his courts with thanksgiving. Our readings for the day range from 1 Chronicles 21 to Jonah 4 to Luke 9 and then 1 Peter 2, and our focus will be split between Jonah and 1 Peter. That means two topics today. Perhaps you've heard a preacher say something like this, the church is not a building but a people, or the church is not a building but a family. I know I've said something like that a lot of times, and in one sense it's true. The church building is not the church. It's not a particularly sanctified and hallowed place. God doesn't live in our church buildings when we're not there or anything like that. It's a building, and the church is not the building. We often say something like, I'm going to church today, signifying that we are driving to a building, but the word ekklesia, which is the basis for our word church, is a Greek word that means a people called out. It doesn't mean a place or a building or even a time of meeting or an assembly. Uh, It it does mean a people assembled together. That's what it indicates. But it doesn't mean like a time for meeting. So you might say, we've got church today at 11 o'clock. Well, that's technically not really the way the word should be used. So the church is people. And yet, interestingly enough, the church is also a building, but probably not in the way you are thinking. Let's read 1 Peter 2 and see how Peter's thinking about this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So, honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Against the soul, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. 
submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel, for it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So you see there, the church is indeed a building. We see it in verse 4 and 5. You've come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood. So we are a building, a building made of living stones, you and me and all saved followers of Christ. And that building is a spiritual house that houses the body of Christ, which is itself a royal priesthood. So is the church a building? Yes, absolutely. It is a building, a spiritual house made up of the people of God together. Verse 9 is one of my absolute favorite verses in scripture and probably at least in my opinion, the best description of the New Testament people of God in the Bible. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So who are you, Christian? A pew sitter? A mere church member? A religious person? Much more than those things. You're called and chosen as a priest, not merely a priest, though, a royal priest possessed by God, joined together with a whole nation of priests and called to proclaim the praises of the God who saved you. Over to Jonah chapter 4. I think I have great justification in our big Bible question of the day for calling Jonah the best preacher in the Old Testament. And I just want you to consider how impactful his sermon was. His message was simply, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, did he say other words than that? We don't know. The Bible says he said those words for sure. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Apparently, he went through the huge city of Nineveh, three-day walk, maybe the biggest city in the world at the time, over a period of of a few days proclaiming that message, and everybody from the least to the greatest in Nineveh heard it, responded to it, and repented in sackcloth and ashes. Amazingly, the people and the king were so moved by the message that Jonah 3 tells us that they not only repented themselves, but they fasted as an outward sign of that repentance and wore sackcloth as an outward sign of that repentance. And this is maybe the most incredible thing of all. They made their animals do the same thing. I've never heard a response to the preaching of God's word anywhere at any time that rivals the response of Nineveh to Jonah's preaching. So that makes him a pretty great preacher in my mind. Even Jesus mentioned Jonah's preaching in the response. So that's another point in his favor. 
Matthew 12.41 says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, of course, I know it was not that Jonah was just this amazing, incredible preacher that everybody was transfixed by. It was God who transformed the hearts of the Ninevites and not Jonah himself, and Jonah knew it too, because he had an interesting reaction to the results of his preaching. When God chose to relent from the judgment he was going to bring, rather than rejoice, Jonah was absolutely furious. Not only was he furious, but he was greatly displeased and, like, suicidal. Well, he literally asked God to kill him. So either he was genuinely wanting to die, or he was being a bit of a drama queen. Well, let's read about it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. And he said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over and you didn't grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than a 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? What a question. So why was Jonah mad? He was mad because God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, who relents from punishing those who deserve to be punished. What an amazing description of God, and what an amazing thing to be angry about. Why was Jonah so angry? Well, I believe the answer was that Jonah valued something more than God. Jonah was trying to serve two masters, and such a thing, according to James, makes you unstable in all of your ways. Pastor Tim Keller has preached nearly a hundred messages on Jonah. Actually, it may be a lot more than that, but I know it's at least nearly a hundred because I have a copy of 84 of those sermons. And in one of them, he gives a very important explanation of why Jonah was mad. Something for us to think about in 2020. Keller says, When a person says, I would just as soon die, he's saying, I don't have any meaning in life. Something was in my life that gave my life meaning and now it's gone, so I have no purpose left. Whatever that is, it has to be a God. It has to be something he got his identity from, a life reference, something that gave him meaning and purpose, something that gave him reason for being, and it's gone. That's why a person is able to say, it's better for me to die than live. Look at who he's saying this to. God is 
talking to Jonah. God is talking to Jonah and Jonah is saying to God, I have no meaning in life. Jonah is looking at the only source of meaning in life, God, and saying, I have no meaning in life. God is looking at the only reason to get up in the morning and he's saying, I have no reason to get up in the morning. Something has been more of a God to Jonah than the real God. He's really a kind of unconscious fool for sitting and saying to God, I have no reason in life while he's looking right at the only reason there is life. Now listen, you may not have used the exact words like this, but what Jonah is saying is, I don't feel like getting up in the morning. Why? I have no reason to get up. I have no reason and no motivation. Why get up? What is there out there for me? Have you not ever had that kind of feeling? Actually, there's a good philosophical name for that. Martin Heidegger calls it angst, A-N-G-S-T, existential despair, a sense of feeling like, what am I really here for? Alienation. There's nothing out there for me. If you haven't felt like Jonah, you're young. Maybe you haven't lived a very long time or you've lived so far a charmed and unreflective life. I can absolutely guarantee you it won't last. Jonah has lost his meaning in life and when that happens, it's because he's lost his God. There was some other God. Now, what was that other God? Well, without taking too much time on it, because we really want to be looking at ourselves here, the other God for Jonah was the national security of his people. We know that Assyria eventually did sack the northern ten tribes of Israel. There were twelve in total. And Assyria, Nineveh, eventually came down, made war against Israel, basically destroyed the northern part of it, and led them off into captivity, never to return. Assyria was a tremendous international political threat and military threat to Israel, and Jonah knows that. Now, Jonah loves his people. That's good. Jonah's a patriot. That's good. But when it's turned into bloodlust, when it's turned in his heart so that now he wants to see those dirty pagans nuked by God, well, that good thing has become an idol. That good thing, which is love for his people, has become a god. When he realized that Israel was not certain to win this power play, this power struggle, when he realized that Israel's national interest had not been secured, he lost all of his meaning in life and he became angry at God, which shows in Jonah's heart that there was a true God and there was a rival God. As long as serving the true God enabled him to serve his rival God also, everything was fine. But on the day that it meant to serve the, to serve the true God meant he'd have to stop serving his rival God, which was the national security of his people, his own pride and his ethnic pedigree and so on, his religiosity, his respectability, etc. On the day in which he had to choose between the true God and the rival God, he turned on the true God. He was using the true God to serve his rival God. He was making the true God a means to an end. Can you look at yourself for a moment here? Do you see that? Do you see it in yourself? Do you see why Jonah was full of instability? Why he could praise God one day and the next day he could turn around and curse? Because he had more than one God down in there. That's pretty amazing. You know, I've seen women who are carrying twins. When you're carrying twins before they're born, there's a lot of kicking and screaming in there. But it's nothing like carrying two gods. Nothing. Do you have anything in your life that you simply must have to be happy? You simply have to have it. You may be Protestant, Catholic, Jewish. You may say, here's what my faith is. But what I want to know today is not what you say you believe, but what is your real religion? What is your real salvation? What is your real hope? What are you really living for? Don't tell me who your professed God is. 
who your functional, who is your functional master in your day-to-day life. Your functional matter, those gods with a little g, those things that you must have, if you don't have, they drive you into the ground with despair. To get them, they'll drive you in your goals and in your schedule. What are your functional masters? Becky Pippert, in her great book, puts it so perfectly. She says, whatever controls you is your Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not seek control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our Lord, then he is the one to whom we submit, for he has the ultimate power. There's no bargains. There is no in-between. That was Tim Keller. Why was Jonah mad then in summation? Well, I guess the answer is something like idolatry. Something other than God was in the utmost place of importance in his life. Jonah was a nationalist, first and first wanted the enemies of his nation crushed so his nation could prosper. He was an Israel fan before he was a God fan, and it made him unstable in all of his ways, praising God with incredible depth in Jonah chapter 2 and basically turning his back on God and cursing him and wanting to die in Jonah 4. This is the instability that every one of us will walk in who puts anything, our nation, our politics, our allegiance to whatever party we are for, our success, our riches, our relationships, whatever it is on the throne of the number one pursuit of our lives. If we put anything but God there, welcome to the world of Jonah, where you are as unstable as all get out. Think well on this, friends, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and seek first the kingdom of God and not any other kingdom or pursuit. Now let's continue. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring a report to me so that I can know their number. Joab replied, May the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over, my lord the king. Aren't they all my lord's servants? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab. So Joab left and traveled throughout Israel and then returned to Jerusalem. Joab gave the total troop registration to David. In all of Israel, there were 1,100,000 armed men, and in Judah itself, 470,000 armed men. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the count because the king's command was detestable to him. This command was also evil in God's sight, so he afflicted Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. Now please take away your servant's guilt, for I have been very foolish. Then the Lord instructed Gad, David's seer, go and say to David, this is what the Lord says, I am offering you three choices, choose one of them for yourself and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says, take your choice, three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you or three days of the sword of the Lord, a plague on the land, the angel of the Lord bringing destruction to the whole territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. David answered Gad, I am in anguish. Please let me fall into the Lord's hands, because his mercies are very great, but don't let me fall into humans' hands. 
So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 Israelite men died. Then God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked and relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. When David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn and his hand stretched out over Jerusalem, David and the elders covered in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? I am the one who has sinned and acted very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family, but don't let the plague be against your people. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David went up at Gad's command, spoken in the name of the Lord. Ornan was threshing wheat when he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid. David came to Ornan, and when Ornan looked and saw David, he left the threshing floor and bowed to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me this threshing floor plot so that I may build an altar to the Lord on it. Give it to me for the full price so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Ornan said to David, Take it. My lord, the king may do whatever he wants to. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. King David answered Ornan, No, I insist on paying the full price, for I will not take for the lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Hmm. So David gave Ornan 15 pounds of gold for the plot, He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, David offered sacrifices there when he saw that the Lord answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, because he was terrified of the sword of the Lord's angel. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Summoning the twelve, Jesus gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them, no staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead, Some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. 
We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled and they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And just then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father, and they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The word, the Son of Man, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them, but Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. 
Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go and bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you will go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, friends, may we not look back. May we look forward, hand on the plow, eyes on Jesus. Good day to you and Godspeed.